Well, good morning. Good to see you all. You can join me in opening your Bible to Mark chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, please do grab one under a seat nearby you. And Mark 10 is on page 847. And we're going to look at a very memorable story this morning. It's a story of a blind uh, beggar named Bartimaeus. He was a desperate, disabled man, and Jesus healed him and changed his life. But this is not mainly a healing story. It's a story about what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. So the man here doesn't just move from blindness to sight. He becomes a follower of Jesus, and the way that he becomes a follower of Jesus shows that he's an ideal example of a disciple. So Mark included this story and in particular included it where he did in his narrative of Jesus' life and ministry to show us what it looks like to follow Jesus. So this becomes clear when we see that this is actually at the uh, culmination point of a larger section in Mark. So the central section of Mark, if you're just kind of looking at your Bible there, is chapters 8 to 10. This whole section shows not just Jesus' identity, but what it means to follow Him. So we're calling this series in the Gospel of Mark the Way of Jesus, and chapters 8 through 10 show us the layers of what that means. So at a most basic level, we'll read the story in just a minute, but this helps us kind of prepare for it. So at a most basic level, this section of chapters 8 through 10 show us that Jesus' way is toward the cross. So Jesus repeats three times to his disciples that he's headed to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer and die and rise again. So he's on the way to the cross, and the disciples and crowds are following him there. But there's another layer here of what it means to see that Jesus is on the way. The way of Jesus is not just the way to the cross, but we could say it's the way of the cross. So the cross is history's greatest moment of self-sacrifice and costly love. That's what the cross shows us as Jesus is crucified. And as Jesus heads to Jerusalem for this moment, He actually continually teaches His disciples that that is actually the way he lives and the way they're called to live. In other words, the way Jesus died is the way he's been living all along, giving himself in humble service and self-sacrificial costly love. That's how he lived. His death was a culmination of that and the greatest expression of that. And as he's headed to do this and as he lives this way, he's calling people to follow him in that way of living in costly love and service for others. So he's calling us to follow him in the way of the cross. So the cross is a a picture of the epitome of how he lived and served and led, led others. And he's calling anyone who wants to follow him, anyone who wants to be a Christian, you are then called to take up your cross, he says. Renounce your self-centeredness and follow him in this way of humble service. This goes so much against our self-centered wiring that everyone around Jesus, as he's teaching this, misses it. They don't actually believe him when he says he's going to go die and rise, and they completely miss the way of life he's calling them to live. Nearly everyone misunderstands really who Jesus is and what it means to follow him in his ministry. But at the culmination of this section of instruction from chapters 8 to 10, we see one man get it. His name is Bartimaeus, and he's a blind beggar. 
and he becomes a model of true discipleship. So let's read this story now. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that you would do what only you can do. We pray that your spirit would fill us now, give us understanding, transform our hearts, and change the way that we live to be more like Jesus. We need you to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. So this story is here to show us how a disabled man becomes our model for discipleship. We'll walk through it in three parts. We'll see the sight of Jesus, the welcome of Jesus, and the way of Jesus. So first, the sight of Jesus. One of Jesus' repeated lessons is on the topic of spiritual sight. So he often spoke about how people see, but they don't see. They have physical eyes that see him, but they don't really get him. They're spiritually blinded, and the blindness comes from their upside-down values. But when someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit gives them a new heart, and they give them, He gives them spiritual sight to see the real Jesus. Spiritual blindness is removed. They see the real Jesus. They see Him for who He is, and they repent, believe, and follow Him. So the big question in Jesus' ministry is this, who really sees Him? Not just with physical sight, but with spiritual sight. And it turns out that you don't actually need physical sight at all to really see him. Because in this story, there's only one person who sees Jesus clearly, and it's the one person who can't see anything else. So here's the situation. Jesus has been traveling from north to south straight to Jerusalem, and he's now at the last town before he gets there. And he has disciples, his disciples with him, he has crowds with him, and he's headed toward Jerusalem, and there's a blind man on the side of the road sitting there. His vocation is begging. He's a man who lives in darkness. He lives in poverty. But we know his name. His name's Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus. And it's interesting, um, this is, the, of all the people that are healed by, healed by Jesus, this is the only name that we actually know of someone who was healed by Jesus. So scholars note that uh, Mark in particular and other gospel writers include names of people who were likely well-known in the early Christian movement. And so, Mark sometimes includes people's names as a way of saying, um, you, you know this person, and as a way of kind of footnoting his sources. 
He gives people's names to say, you can check out what I'm saying. It's historically credible. Here's the guy's name. You, all, you know him. You know where to find him. And so that's likely why he includes Bartimaeus' name here. Now think about this man. He's disabled. He's unable to see. He's disenfranchised. Everyone overlooks him. He's impoverished. He's got to beg for money. So this man has no social status. He was an overlooked afterthought in that culture. But as the crowds start moving by, he finds out that Jesus is there. And so he cries out, verse 41, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So he clearly already knew something about Jesus, and not just something. He actually grasped the essence of Jesus' identity and mission in, in a way that's spoken more clearly than nearly anyone else in this gospel account. So he cries out Jesus' identity as the son of David. So he's identifying Jesus as the king from David's line, the long-awaited son of David who would come to rule and bring justice and peace to the world. And so he believes Jesus is this long-awaited king, and he calls out for mercy. He understands that that's what Jesus is here to give. He trusts that Jesus can heal him. He expresses his desperation for Jesus to help him. But what happens when he cries out? Did you notice what the people did, how they responded to him? It's an important and revealing moment. Look at verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And we know how this kind of thing happens. These people are caught up in the excitement of the moment, of being with Jesus. They're headed to Jerusalem. They think of Jesus as very important, and they think of themselves as very important people with Him. They're His handlers. They're His VIPs. They're His entourage, and they're on the way to the capital city. And a blind beggar is making a fuss on the side of the road, and so they want Him to stay quiet. He's ruining the moment. He's a nuisance. He's not part of Jesus' crew. So they tell him to be silent. We can understand how this happens. It's almost predictable in the cultures of our world, given the values of our cultures. But what happens? Well, he keeps crying out persistently until Jesus hears him, and then Jesus stops in his tracks. Right? It says he stopped. He stood still. He calls the man. The people change their tune and call the man to come. So what's going on here? Well, it's a stark contrast. Here we have the disciples and a crowd all surrounding Jesus, celebrating Jesus, following Jesus in a sense. They're all there for Jesus. And then we have this blind beggar on the side of the road, and all these people assume that Jesus is just like them. They assume that Jesus will also overlook him like they always do and are doing right then. They assume that Jesus would be bothered by him, like they're bothered by him. They assume that Jesus doesn't care about him, but they're wrong. So here's a clear contrast. It's a contrast between the disciples and the crowds and the blind man. It's also a contrast between the disciples and the crowds and Jesus himself. So the blind man here, in calling out, Son of David, have mercy on me, is the only one who truly sees Jesus. He's the only one who truly gets Jesus. Everyone else sees Jesus physically, but they do not get his values. They don't understand him yet. They don't think that he wants to show mercy 
to a man like this. But this man can't see Jesus physically, but he sees Jesus better than anyone else there. He identifies Jesus as the son of David, the one who came to show mercy to people like him. So this man is the only one who sees Jesus clearly, and Jesus is the only one who sees this man. We've seen this for weeks, how Mark carefully chooses which stories to include, and even how he carefully relates them to one another. And he subtly connects stories to show their layers of significance, and he's doing that with this story as well. So we've already really seen the point by just thinking through this, reading it carefully. But Mark is doing something else in this bigger story to help us see even a more deeper significance here to reinforce the point. So I mentioned earlier this central section of Mark's gospel from chapters, chapter 8 through 10. And this central section is bookended by two stories of blind men being healed. So Mark often does this. He'll start a story He'll go somewhere else, and then he'll return to a story that's just like the one before it. And so he's doing that with this bigger section. So the first one, the first healing of a blind man is in chapter 8, and it's an odd one. You can turn there with me uh, briefly, just back a couple pages. It's the only time when Jesus heals someone in stages. So look at chapter 8, verses 23 to 25. When Jesus had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And this man looks up, he was previously blind, and he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid on his eyes, his hands on his eyes a second time, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So with Jesus' first touch, the man sees but is blurry, and then with the second touch, everything's clear. And if you were here a couple months ago when we looked at that story, we saw that Jesus did that on purpose. He was using that physical healing as a metaphor for the progression of spiritual healing that's taking place with his disciples. So a repeated theme throughout the whole first half of Mark's gospel is this theme of spiritual sight. He says that people see physically, they don't see spiritually, they don't yet get Jesus, and he says that this is actually a concern he has of his own disciples. So look back a few more verses earlier in chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, he says to his disciples, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And then he heals the blind man in stages, two stages. And then right after he heals that blind man in stages, Peter makes this clear confession of the identity of Jesus, the clearest one yet, you are the Christ. Well done, Peter, you see. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die and rise. And Peter says, no way. Okay, so Peter's sight is blurry, right? He doesn't, he sees, but he doesn't see. And then in story after story, from then on, from chapters 8 through 10, Jesus is showing what it looks like to really see him, what it looks like to really follow him, what it really looks like to not be spiritually blind anymore, but to get Jesus and to follow him. And now Mark ends this section in chapter 10, Right before Jesus enters Jerusalem, and now we're into the last week of Jesus' ministry, he ends this section, culminates it with another healing of a blind man. And so what's going on in this story now that we're looking at? Well, the disciples and the crowds are following Jesus thinking they have spiritual sight, but they don't, at least not clear enough yet. 
They rebuke and silence the kind of person that Jesus came for. They overlook the one that Jesus came looking for. They think that Jesus is too good for this man. They don't yet understand that what it is that makes Jesus truly good and great is that he doesn't overlook this kind of man. In other words, here's the point. The blind man's the only one who sees. He sees that Jesus is the king. He sees that Jesus came to show mercy. He sees that Jesus just requires dependent faith. He knows that he needs nothing to qualify except his need. So this is the sight of Jesus. He sees Jesus, and Jesus sees him. No one else fully gets it. So that's the first step, the sight of Jesus. Now second, we see the welcome of Jesus. It's a vivid scene here. The blind man sitting by the road, crying out repeatedly and persistently, which we've learned from Jesus earlier is what Jesus calls us to do with this persistent dependence. They all tell him to be quiet, and then Jesus stops everything for the man, and he says, call him. Of course, now the people change their tune now that they understand that Jesus has a different plan. Look in verse 49, and they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, cheer up, get up, he's calling you. So they were saying, shut up, and now they're saying, yes, as we were saying, you're the, you're the very kind of person Jesus wants to stop for. Did we say shut up? We meant cheer up, get up. So the man sprang up, and he went to Jesus, and then Jesus asks him a question in verse 51 what do you want me to do for you? He asked that question in the previous story we saw last week, if you were with us, to James and John. You remember what James and John wanted from Jesus? They wanted to be great. They wanted to sit next to Jesus in his glory. They're excited that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. They don't quite understand what's going to happen there. They want glory. But what does this man ask for? He asked for mercy, and he asked for healing. In other words, the disciples have revealed their heart in the previous story. What do they want? They want to be extraordinary. What does this man want? He just wants to be ordinary. Another contrast between the disciples who don't get it and this blind man who does. The disciples overlook this man. The crowds overlook this man. Jesus welcomes him because this is showing two different value systems. This is just a clear outworking of the difference we saw in the previous story. Look again at verses 42 to 45 from the previous story. So James and John want Jesus to make them great. They want to use Jesus for power, influence, greatness in his kingdom. In other words, they want Jesus to feed their pride. But Jesus says that this whole way of thinking about power and leadership and greatness and influence is upside down. So he says in verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But, now here's Jesus' vision for true greatness, true leadership. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he gives himself as this example, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is radically redefining there true greatness as humble service, and this is a radical reorientation for us today. Many of our problems 
in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, in our culture. Many problems come from neglecting humility, and this applies to every moment of life. We saw this a bit last week. We tend to prioritize charisma over character. We prioritize ability over humility, and this becomes the lens through which we view people. So I remember as I was a kid, there was this fad of blue blockers. Do you remember these? Sunglasses, some of you may. Um, You wear them and they block the blue out. You don't see blue anymore. I don't know why that was so amazing or cool, kind of random, but it was a fad. That's a picture of what happens when we don't value humility, right? We have a set of lenses that comes from our own default setting of our hearts with pride, and we block out certain kinds of people. We don't notice them, and that's what's happening here in the story with Bartimaeus. The crowds are prideful, and so their lenses are set to overlook people like him. But Jesus sees him because Jesus is the epitome of humble service. It's the way he lived, it's the way he would die, in humble, sacrificial love for those who need his mercy. And so this story then illustrates Jesus' lesson on humility, illustrates it perfectly. Everyone else around Bartimaeus, around Jesus at the time, is so caught up in their big dealness that they do not even notice this man. But Jesus sees him, he hears him, he stops for him, and he heals him. Jesus is not responding to this man because he sees some kind of untapped greatness and power and prestige or good works. This man has nothing. He brings Jesus his need. And the one word that Jesus uses to summarize what he's responding to in this man, do you see the one word? It's faith. Not surprising. Jesus said that his faith has made him well. His faith is what has saved him and healed him. It's what Jesus is responding. Of course, Jesus is the one who healed him. But Jesus is drawing attention to what this man brought. He brought his openness and need, his need for mercy. Simple trust in Jesus. So we can summarize the welcome of Jesus this way. He welcomed him with dignity. This is different than our culture. Our culture generally devalues people with disabilities. We often don't treat them with dignity and respect. Let's think of just the beginning of life, example from the middle of life and the end of life. In the beginning of life, many children in our culture are tested in the womb to see if they can be diagnosed with a disability, and if they are, they're discarded. Call it disability selective abortion. What about the middle of life? Many disabled people receive far more stares than they do smiles. Many nursing homes are wonderful places Uh, filled with love and care. One of my brothers, Tyler, whom I've shared before, he passed away um, in recent years. He was severely handicapped, and he was in a nursing home for much of his life, and it was an incredible place. So much humility and love and service and joyful care for him. Um, Just amazing. But what I learned in having him as my brother is that his experience was incredibly rare, that many nursing homes are actually filled with people who do not treat people with dignity and respect. At the end of life, a normal part of growing old, if you think about it, is accumulating disabilities, isn't it? 
right? Mentally, physically, we're powering down and our bodies no longer work well. And what happens when we live in a culture that values productivity over personhood? Euthanasia. Discarding people. What does Jesus show, though, in this story? When everyone else overlooks this man, Jesus sees him. Jesus stops for him, and he welcomes him with dignity. One of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry, have you seen this in the Gospel of Mark? One of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry is healing the disabled. Over and over and over, we see Jesus drawn to the disabled, and the disabled are drawn to him. We sometimes can get distracted, I know I have in the past, by just the fact that these are miracles, and then we just talk about Jesus' miracles. Isn't it amazing that Jesus could do so many miracles? He did so many amazing things. Look, divine power filled with the Spirit. He's God. He's doing miracles, which is all wonderful, but Jesus isn't just doing random magic tricks. He was caring for those afflicted by three Ds, diseases, demons, and disabilities. And he welcomes them with dignity. He's just drawn to the disabled, and they're drawn to him over and over and over. You cannot get around observing Jesus' ministry closely and seeing that this was on his heart. And he's going to come back one day and renew all things. And all those who came to him with humble faith, whatever disability they had, will be healed forever. Resurrection on a new earth. So let's move to the last step here which is the way of Jesus. Look at verse 52. Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. So the man began this story sitting along the road, along the way, and now he ends the story following Jesus on the way. Mark loves to use this word way for referring to the way of discipleship. It's why we're calling this series The Way of Jesus. Mark shows us that the way of Jesus is the way to the cross, and it's the way of the cross. The way Jesus lived is the way he calls us to follow, and Mark repeatedly uses the word way to refer to this. In English translations, it's translated road or path or way. Most often in Mark, it's the same Greek word, and Mark got it from Isaiah because Mark opens his gospel by quoting from Isaiah 40, saying, prepare the way of the Lord, right? The, the way of Yahweh, the way of God is here. And then Jesus shows up as the divine Lord in human flesh. You know, the early Christians didn't call this movement Christianity at first. You know what they called it? The way from Isaiah. Mark loves it. And so Mark ends this section of the gospel where he's repeatedly referred to the way of Jesus and Jesus being on his way and people following him on the way. He ends this right before Jesus enters Jerusalem with this man who sees Jesus following him on the way. What's the point? This man, the only one who sees Jesus clearly, becomes an example for us of what it means to follow Jesus on the way. This man's a model. So in light of that, let's just reflect the last few minutes here on some lessons we learn from this story about what it means then to follow Jesus. First, we trust Jesus like this man. He came to Jesus with simple faith. He knew Jesus' identity as the true king. He knew that Jesus came to show mercy for people like him. And so he depends on Jesus for mercy and healing. 
This story is an example of the principle, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not whoever proves that he's a good person will be saved. Not whoever believes that God exists will be saved. No, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you have not yet called on the name of the Lord, this is an invitation for you to do it even now. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to turn your life around first. You come to Jesus with the faith like this man, and you ask him for mercy. You ask him for forgiveness. You receive grace. And if you have some kind of disability, let this be a great encouragement to you. Though many have overlooked you, Jesus won't. Though many have rejected you, Jesus won't. He may not heal you just yet. You may have to wait for the great day of resurrection, but he welcomes you. Second, introduce people to Jesus. I mean, that's what the disciples and crowds should have done, is it not? But instead of introducing this man to Jesus, they were keeping him from Jesus by overlooking him. Their problem is that they were caught up in their own greatness, their own big dealness. They were too caught up in it to see this man. They're too busy feeling great about being close to Jesus that they overlook him. So it's a reminder that we can be so busy trying to be Christians that we lose sight of the actual mission. It's a reminder to put on the humble lens of Jesus so that we see people who need him and we create pathways for them to get to Jesus. We think creatively about how to bring people to Jesus, how to expose them to Jesus, help them get to know him. Third, we reflect the welcome of Jesus to those who are most often overlooked. So the crowd was ignoring this man because he was poor and disabled. Our culture does the same thing. Right, our hearts are wired to do the same thing, and it's because of pride. It's because the values of our culture come from the values of our hearts, and it's all reflected in who we gravitate toward. It's reflecting in who, reflected in who we notice. It's reflected in who we care about, who we care for, who we talk to. But if we follow the way of Jesus, then one of the things we need to learn is to welcome the disabled with dignity just like Jesus did. We'll notice and care for those with physical, mental, or social challenges. In a culture that can push them out of sight, we'll actually go out of our way to find out where they are so we can go welcome them and treat them with dignity. It's one of the key aspects of diversity in a church is diversity of abilities. So I'm so grateful for so many of you who do care for those who are disabled or aging and then accumulating disability or serving at Zionsville Meadows nearby, serving in our own disability ministry here. We can call this humble hospitality. It's hospitality, but it's hospitality that is distinctly trying to grab Jesus' lens of humility um, over it. So humble hospitality is an intentionality to welcome people that are different than you, different than the majority of whatever group you're a part of, different than the majority of our church. Because those who are different than the majority of any group anywhere tend to be overlooked by the majority in different ways. So humble hospitality is about being intentionally sensitive and welcoming to those who are different and may tend to be overlooked. So who in your neighborhood, just think about whatever street you live on, whatever building you're part of, who in your neighborhood is neglected in that neighborhood? Does anyone come to mind? 
It's a person that Jesus would call us to be drawn to. Who at your workplace needs to be welcomed and included better? Who's in need of mercy? Which children with challenges are in need of adoption or foster care in our culture? How can we create a culture that cares for the disabled in the womb and gives parents courage and help to keep them and care for them or make ourselves available for adoption so that we can care for them? These are all ways we can reflect the welcome of Jesus, and there's many more. Finally, uh, we look to the lowly as a model of discipleship. It would be easy for people who have good health and many resources to think of their role mainly in terms of helping those who have less health and less resources. And certainly, that's a point of this text. We're to welcome people like this blind man. Just mentioned that and spent time with this. But a broader point of this text, and the reason it's here, I'm convinced, in light of just what Mark's doing and Jesus is doing with showing this man as an example, is to show how Bartimaeus is a model for us to follow. He's a model disciple. He's one that we should look to and learn from. So the very fact that Mark ends and culminates this section on the way of Jesus with this man as a model challenges our pride because our prideful cultural postures, uh, our prideful culture in our hearts posture ourselves, we posture our hearts above people like this to reach out to this kind of person. But Mark is calling us to humble ourselves and learn from this kind of person, to follow the example of this man. So this challenges the tendency of Christians in our culture to maybe gravitate more quickly to celebrities who become Christians as models to follow, right? Buy their book. Be a Christian like them. Why? Well, because they're so cool. They have money. They have health. Look at them. Uh, they have this special skill that our culture values. We look to sports stars as examples. We look to celebrities who become Christians as models. We take our culture's values of wealth and strength and appearance, and we still use those standards for who we're most excited to learn from in learning to follow Jesus. But have you noticed how many wealthy, strong, good-looking, powerful Christians have recently tor torpedoed their ministries because of pride? So this story is a reminder that we should be looking for humble leaders, whether they have the health and wealth and looks or not. We do what the Lord did in the book of 1 Samuel. We're reading through this with um, our boys in the evenings and just struck again by God rejecting Saul and choosing David, not because David had special abilities, but because it says the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel is all about humble leadership. And so that's what we see here as well. So it reminds us to look for humility. Over time, it's the humble that I've grown to respect most. Many people who seemed immediately compelling to me have proven to be prideful over time. It can be disillusioning. And yet some people who I remember first overlooking, not paying any attention to, have become the people I have grown to respect most and want to be most like. And I can see that they're still overlooked by so many people. Um, but it's their humility that's compelling. So fame looks Compelling speaking gifts, so forth, all fine, gifts of the Lord, but the essential quality to look for is humility. And many people who show this most are Christians who have lived with suffering and disabilities. 
So this story is ultimately an example of what it looks like to humble ourselves and look to Jesus. It's really not in the end about honoring Bartimaeus, but with Bartimaeus looking to Jesus and seeing with Bartimaeus that Jesus is the king. He's the one who shows mercy. He's the humble example. And so we come to him and even just repent to him of our own pride that might have been exposed in the last several minutes and receive fresh mercy from him and ask him to empower us by the Spirit to be humble like him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. And so we together take this moment to express the words of Bartimaeus to have mercy on us. And so we thank you for your mercy through the cross. We pray that you'd transform us to become more like Jesus. Amen.